You are listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. This morning, we turn our attention to the Hawaiian Homes Commission Act, which came into being 100 years ago. We consider the past, the present, and the future over the next hour to better understand the crossroads we are at here in Hawaii. William Isla is director of the Department of Hawaiian Homelands. He joins us in our studios this morning. So nice to see you, William. Aloha. Good morning. It's been like more than a year and a half, it seems. <laughs> it's part of that COVID fog. Yes, yes. And also joining us today, Robin Danner. She hails from Kauai. She's the chairwoman of the Sovereign Council of Hawaiian Homestead Associations. Good morning, Robin. Good morning. Good morning, uh, Catherine and uh, Bill. Aloha. Yeah, so so glad you could join us today. And Tom Grande is a Honolulu attorney who successfully sued the state over mismanagement of the trust and its failure to serve our beneficiaries. Uh, good morning, Tom. Aloha, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. Um, my co-counsel, Carl Verity, is not able to appear, so I'll be speaking on both of our behalf this morning. Okay, all right. Well, I'm going to circle back. And, um, William, I guess you just walked into our studios because you had a, a little ceremony out there uh, uh, out at uh, Kapolei at the offices this morning. Yes, we had the uh, wonderful opportunity of celebrating the 100th anniversary of the Hawaiian Homes Commission Act and um, highlighted the uh, efforts that uh, Prince Kuhio and many others uh, put forward in order to um, create the, the act, uh, which has allowed more than 10,000 lessees um, to actually be on the land and really to serve their, their leases serve as a pico to, the, to their families. Um, yes, we have a long way to go. There's 28,000 plus people on the wait list with 43,000 applications. Um, I think what we all have sort of agreed to or identified that, you know, as we have resources, resources allow us to create lots, lots allow us to create lessees and remove people from the wait list. So there's, there's nothing magical about the solution. We just have to all work together to uh, find those resources. Well, we are at a you know, significant milestone, the uh, centennial. And just uh, in the last hour, there was a ceremony in our nation's capital. Uh, let's go now uh, to hear uh, Kaikaheli. Uh, the intent of the act would create a permanent homeland for Native Hawaiians and return the people Aina Ho'opulapula to their lands in order to support self-sufficiency and self-determination. Today, the act supplies nearly 10,000 homestead lessees, providing housing to countless families across the state of Hawaii and to this day remains the most significant piece of legislation for the advancement of Native Hawaiians. Yet, we need to do more. We must do more. Thousands of Native Hawaiians have died while on the wait list, and thousands, 28,000, remain waiting in hopes to receive a homestead lease. Native Hawaiians are overrepresented among the houseless population in Hawaii, and the high cost of living further threatens to increase this sad statistic. Within the next year, for the first time in history, it is estimated that the number of Native Hawaiians living in Hawaii will fall below the number of Native Hawaiians living elsewhere. This is unacceptable. The Hawaiian Homes Commission Act can help narrow the divide toward home ownership for Native Hawaiians. We were hearing from Hawaii U.S. Representative Kai Kahele from this morning's live uh, stream 
press conference from Washington, D.C. And, you know, Robin, you were there at the ceremony over at Kapolei this morning. Oh, you know, what does this day mean to you as a beneficiary? I think it's uh, it's bittersweet. That's the term that comes to my mind. It's sweet that we can celebrate a policymaker of the caliber of Jonah Kuhio Kaleniana Ole, absolutely. And then it's bitter uh, to realize that for your listeners especially, that what 10,000 on the land means over 100 years is 100 a year. That's uh, So it's a sobering, it's bittersweet in that uh, it's a sobering reflection, you know, of what what was supposed to happen over these last 10 de- decades, what actually happened as we reflect on that. Uh, and for me, and as the Shaw chairwoman, uh, that's been a coalition for 35 years, uh, it's, it's a reflection, and again, I say the word, a sobering reflection about what needs to happen uh, going forward. That's what the centennial means to tens of thousands of us that are on the wait list um, uh, for land. And, you know, when we think about the origins of this act, uh, it came to be because Hawaii leaders at the time feared the extinction of the Native Hawaiian community because of the the problems with disease, with tuberculosis, with the flu pandemic. Uh, we did reach out to uh, Professor Daviana McGregor. She's a professor of ethnic studies and the director of the Oral History Center at the University of Hawaii. In 1920, the life expectancy of Native Hawaiians was 35 years, whereas for Caucasians, it was 57, and for Chinese, 54 and Japanese 51. It was a very low life expectancy, and it wasn't a general thing. It wasn't a Hawaii thing. It was a Hawaiian thing. I think what's important for us to understand is that these lands are the national lands of the Hawaiian nation, and so while they are being leased out to Native Hawaiian families to use, and the leases have, you know, the first leases have been, have started to be renewed, that and, and that's how it should be. But there's some thought about, oh, these lands should be made allowed to be private. But these are not lands for individual private ownership. These are still national lands. They're, they're not for private ownership and private purposes. They belong to the Hawaiian people as a whole in the Hawaiian nation and, and should be really under the governance of the Hawaiian nation, you know, which, which we're seeking to do. But the intent was not to create private land ownership for Native Hawaiians, but to create a, tr- a public trust comprised of the national lands for the, the people of Hawaii, for the nation of Hawaii. That was uh, Professor Deviana McGregor, a professor of ethnic studies at the University of Hawaii. You know, Tom, uh, jump in here because you filed a class action lawsuit on behalf of the beneficiaries because you felt that the trust was being managed, mismanaged. Yeah, and, and I think it's important to go back to statehood and understand what duties the, the uh, state assumed um, as a condition of statehood. Um, and the duty that it assumed was a fiduciary duty with respect to Native Hawaiians and the administration of the Department of Hawaiian Homelands. A fiduciary duty is the highest duty under the law. It requires you to put uh, your, the beneficiary's interests in front of your own interests. And so there's an inherent conflict here between the state's fiduciary duty to Native Hawaiians and its duty to others in the state, <clears throat> you know, who have 
uh, who would be the, the the recipients of state resources. Um, if you look at what happened um, from 1959 moving forward, uh, unfortunately, the state uh, failed miserably in its placing of, of Native Hawaiians on the land. And, and I want to emphasize that it's the state's failure and not the department's failure necessarily. The department had to work with the resources that it had, um, and it had limited resources because the state um, took the lands away from the trust. The state leased lands to private landowners at substandard, uh, at sub, sub, uh, sub-market rates. Um, they didn't maintain financial, adequate financial records. They didn't maintain adequate records for beneficiaries. And so uh, the genesis of our lawsuit started back in 1959, um, where the state, over the course of the next couple of decades, did not fulfill its fiduciary obligation. Um, there were really three significant legal developments that occurred starting in the late 1970s and early 1980s. Um, in 1978, the Constitutional Convention mandated that the state should provide sufficient sums to the Department of Hawaiian Homelands for its operations. Um, in 1995, Governor Waihe'e orchestrated a $600 million settlement to the trust to compensate the trust as a whole for lands that were wrongfully taken or for mismanagement. And the third legal development is the one that resulted in our suit, which was the creation of a claims panel to resolve individual breaches of trust for persons uh, who had those breaches occur between 1959 and 1988. Um, under, under, Governor under his direction and his leadership, a Hawaiian claims office was established in 1991, and they received the claims of 2,700 Native Hawaiians who alleged breach of trust. Um, most of those were for waiting list claims, that, they, that there was a delay in them receiving their homestead, and they alleged that was a breach of the, of the department's trust obligation to them. Um, and between 1991 and 1999, the Hawaiian Claims Panel considered and recommended uh, uh, compensation for many of the 2,700 claims. Uh, unfortunately, there was a change in administration, and in 1999, Governor Cayetano uh, suspended the claims process. So uh, what was happening as of 1999 was a recognition that there was wrongdoing, the state's acknowledgement that there was wrongdoing, the state's reaching out with its hand of reconciliation to these Native Hawaiians, and then the state pulled its hand back and said, we're suspending the claims process and we're not going to go any further. Uh, that resulted in this lawsuit that, that Carl Verity and I filed in 1999, uh, and that we've been litigating ever since, basically to try to get monetary compensation for these 2,700 kupuna. They're all uh, all 70 years, uh, 65 years, 70 years older um, uh, for the breaches of trust that they suffered. Well, if you're just joining in the conversation, we're talking about the centennial of the enactment of the Hawaiian Homes Commission Act. Uh, you can join our discussion by call us, calling us here at 941-3689. Uh, stay with us. We will be right back after a short break. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Anchor Systems Hawaii. On the next Science Friday... What beach trip is complete without a hunt for shells? But shells are more than just a collector's item. 
I started thinking of seashells almost like an ambassador to help explain some of the pressures that are happening in the ocean. Take a different kind of walk on the beach with us on the next Science Friday from WNYC Studio. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, with ways for the community to help conserve water during the hot summer months when rainfall is low but demand is high. Seven ways to conserve water at boardofwatersupply.com. You are back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. Our guest today, William Isla, Director of the Department of Hawaiian Homelands. Robin Danner is the Chairwoman of the Sovereign Council of Hawaiian Homestead Associations. And Tom Grande is the Honolulu Attorney who filed a class action lawsuit against the state uh, for mismanagement of the trust. And Tom, you know, you, you folks were talking about, uh, you know, your lawsuit uh, we have a second lawsuit uh, that was filed recently about uh, inadequate funding to the Department of Hawaiian Homelands. Um, uh, talk about that. Yeah, this, <clears throat> this uh, stems out of the first legal development that I referred to, which was the 1978 Constitu- Constitutional Convention amendments that required the state to provide sufficient sums for DHH- DHHL operations. Um, between 1978 and 2007, the state did not provide those sufficient sums, and in some years provided no amount of funding for DHHL operations. So in 2007, the Native Hawaiian Legal Corporation filed a lawsuit basically to enforce the constitutional mandate that said you must, fi- you must fund the department sufficiently for its operations and for other matters. Um, that's the Nelson lawsuit. Um, it was as I mentioned, it was filed in 2007, went up on appeal to the Supreme Court twice, but ultimately uh, resulted in the Supreme Court affirming um, that the Constitutional Convention requirement of providing sufficient sums for operations, um, you know, was appropriate and should be followed. Um, The Constitutional Convention said, uh, estimated the operation costs as at 1.3 to 1.6 million and the Supreme Court said those funds you know, must and should be uh, allocated in the future uh, based on 1978 values brought to present. And William, can you talk about the funding for DHHL? I mean, how are we doing? Okay, sure. Um, just as an addition to Tom, I mean, the, the most recent court decision was that the, um, the CONCON, uh, as a question was sent back to the uh, circuit court, was to determine what was the a methodology to determine um, inflation. Um, the department uh, and Native Hawaiian Legal Corp, of course, made uh, an argument that inflation should include, uh, you know, the increase in personnel that we have, uh, the increase in wages, the um, additional costs that we have to manage lands that are not um, homesteaded right now. Unfortunately, the judge did not uh, choose that calculation. So, what we uh, the decision out of that was somewhere around we're entitled to six to seven million dollars a year um, based upon the judge's interpretation of inflation. We have been getting um, 
I think anywhere from 18, uh, 14 to $18 million the last, I want to say, four years of the um, uh, EGA administration. So the numbers have come up. Um, however, per the Nelson case, you know, our estimate of what would be sufficient sums is because the the, con uh, the, the constitutional amendment says that the, the Congress, um, excuse me, the legislature shall fund uh, the department sufficiently is for operating costs somewhere around $45 million a year. And then for our capital improvement um, budget, somewhere around 170 to $200 million a year. So uh, what we deem to be su sufficient funding is very different from what um, the legislature deems to be sufficient. Now, the Supreme Court has also also ruled that um, it is there's a, there's a legal term that I can't remember right now, but oh, justicable. So it is not justicable for the uh, judiciary to determine um, what the legislature is supposed to pay because they're separate branches of government well, to fund the department. What is the budget for this uh, coming year? The budget for uh, the biennium budget for the next two years is somewhere around 14 million little bit over 14 million and on the CIP side so the uh, the monies that allow us to build infrastructure um, we have a record of 79 million dollars being allocated which will you know end up um, the infrastructure will lead to lots which will lead to leases so we're, we're very happy that the trajectory of funding is going in the right direction but it's nowhere near enough okay we do have a call uh, Anthony from Kauai what's on your mind yeah, uh, basically, I'm angry. As president of Spot Hawaiian Ancestry, I'm very angry with the people in the state of Hawaii. We've always known that we could never get anything funded because we always had to go hand and knee into the legislators and ask for money that should have been used. I'm happy that these people are suing and they were getting our money, but everyone I know who was on the list is dead now. They are not getting anything. And for me, I have Hawaiian homes right now because we bought a house from a person who was moving out and we bought their house. We shouldn't have to be going around looking for people to move out and buy. We should be having our land, utilizing it to its best ability for us. And definitely the legislators, all of them, and we know two groups that are in charge, as the Haoles and the Japanese, and neither of them like us. And this is a part of the problem. They're always giving us scrap. I can read legislation that goes back a long way. Every time they put in money for us, it comes right out. I was reading something today about a house bill that put in money for Hawaiian homes that was all of a sudden taken out. We have no control over this. Us Hawaiians, we need to do better by getting out and voting and becoming a block vote so that we can get what we want. This isn't something that's going to be solved this year, next year. It's something that's going to be solved over the next 10 years. And we need as Hawaiians to get in and do what we need to do as citizens. And also people who deserve, we have the bloodline. We need to get this sold off in I was born in 1945. I've seen the prejudices that we have coming through. Everybody doesn't like us. We sit in the back of the class. We have to fight to get up to the front of the class. We have to work harder than anybody else. And we're always 
one token Hawaiian is always put into something so that everybody can say, look, Taka there. Look, Judge Nakea there. Look, anybody else is there. Well, we We're certainly... Doing something for you folks. Never we anything. we okay. certainly hear your okay. frustration I'm, and uh, very eloquently put, uh, you know, to, to get out there and, and vote. Uh, you know, Robin, jump in here. Uh, that's your island, Kauai. I think, I think your caller is uh, right on the money. I mean, governors matter. Legislators matter. Uh, when NHLC filed suit in the Nelson case about sufficient funding, it was because of a Department of Hawaiian Homeland and a governor, Governor Lingle, and her DHHL. They went to the legislature and said, no need fund DHHL. We need to remember that. And they fought NHLC. But Nelson, the Nelson case, God bless Uncle Dickie, Nelson and the other plaintiffs, that they stuck with it. And they won the case for us as beneficiaries, but also for DHHL. But governors matter legislators matter uh and i think it's an absolute misnomer it's almost dishonest to say that the last 10 years even 20 years of failure of the uh, of getting people off that list like your caller talked about was due to money that is almost a dishonest statement because uh tom mentioned the 1995 600 million dollar settlement well, there's still $150 million in that account from Act 14 that's been there for the last decade. The legislature has done a good job. I, I, I agree with Bill. Uh, the last four years, not only have they funded the DHHL operations, but they funded $100 million in CIP. So now we're at got $150 million uh, from Act 14 sitting there, $100 million the last four years, another $78 $79 million that the legislature uh, just funded. So it's a misnomer to say that the failure of the program is just money. That is easy to say. That's lazy to say. The, the three things, and, and, and while um, I think we can all agree that over 10, 10 de decades this program has been woefully mismanaged and administered, but I'm actually optimistic uh, because of uh, the comments of your caller from Kauai, uh, because we've got an election coming up in 2022. And looking toward the future, Catherine, I mean, there's really three things that, very three very simple things that need to happen. First, the next governor and the next legislature uh, needs to embrace Native Hawaiians, homestead associations, beneficiaries that we remain when the governor leaves, when the DHHL director leaves. We remain, and our expertise is there. So we need to, number one, move Native Hawaiian Homestead Associations and our beneficiaries to the front of advising DHHL, the commission, the legislature, and the congressional delegation. Number two, we need to move capital efficiently to our building industry to get water lines installed, to get roads done. The capital is there, has been there. And then third, we need to move land into Hawaiian hands first. It is telling, Catherine, that of the 200,000 acres, only 40,000 acres is in the hands of Native Hawaiians for homesteading. The, more than that number, closer to 60,000 acres, are in the hands of non-beneficiaries on temporary leases. I just saw it, an approval a 
a couple of months ago for another 300 acres to park a ranch. That these things have got to be secondary, and what has to be a priority is moving land directly to that wait list that Tom uh, and Carl Verity have so uh, wonderfully represented the interest uh, in this fiduciary uh, duty that's been failed. And uh, uh, just full disclosure, so Robin, you are a homesteader there on Kauai. You were also on the wait list for uh, an ag lot as well? All of the Shaw leaders uh, that are elected to our uh, governing council are beneficiaries of the Hawaiian Homeland Trust or have won elections by being voted on by beneficiaries of the Hawaiian Homeland Trust. And so we all are interested in uh, the 10,000 that are on the the land, but also uh, the 28,000 that are on that wait list. I think, Bill, Bill, this this DHL administration did a good job of – doing a survey and it came came out that the average what is it bill the, the average age of the wait list is approaching 60 years old that's good that's great we've got to have reform and movement and like i said uh while it's frustrating i'm actually optimistic the shaw the wait list association were actually optimistic because 2022 uh is a big election year and similar to your to your caller I want to say to the public out there, Hawaiian or non-Hawaiian, governors matter. Who is elected governor matters. Legislators matter. Who's in the Senate and and in the House. So, mahalo. Uh, William, you know, I, I know you are on homestead land, right? Yes. I think uh, through your wife. Through my wife. Uh, and I, so you're kind of in a in a strange situation where you know you you've got the the cap on as director of DHHL. But can you address at least Robin's? Uh, concerns about the the funding? Sure. Well, let me just address mm-hmm. the, the average age. Uh, mm-hmm. Even though the average age is just above 60, um, our our data shows that many of the folks that are on the wait list right now in that age group have decided to defer more than three or four times. And it's not surprising. People will defer because they want to live where their support group is. So people in Anahola that grew up there want to live in Anahola. People in Waimanalo yes. want to live in Waimanalo. We understand that. <laughs> so, you know, that's, and that's been a problem from, not a problem, it's been a preference for beneficiaries from the very beginning. In the pilot project, it was mentioned in the review that people are unwilling to move to, to new lands and settle new lands. They want to be, you know, in the aina of their birth. So that's, that's one. Um, I do think Robin does a disservice when she says that, you know, we've been mismanaging the, the trust for the last 10 years. Um, yes, there is $100 million that is part of the, um, the $600 million that's sitting there because, okay, the commissioners, the Hawaiian Homelands commissioners have decided that they want to hold on to that $100 million and put it into an investment endowment for the years that we don't get help from the legislature or the years that we have economic downturn, so that the income off of that endowment provides us for those off years to continue the pipeline of uh, infrastructure for lots. So I think the department has not made that decision. Commissioners have made that decision. So um, I don't think the department is um, on the hook for that one. Um, We are governed by a board of commissioners. There's nine of us, and you know they make decisions that's what's best for the trust into perpetuity. Um, so 
if we could build that trust one day or build that endowment one day to be a billion dollars or several like Kamehameha schools, we would be happy to do so. And then we would reinvest that money into programs, into additional infrastructure projects, into down payment assistance, into, you know, mortgage um, assistance. So it is, it, resources are a problem. And yes, we do have a hundred million in the bank, but the f- folks with the fiduciary duty have decided that it makes sense to invest that money, grow the endowment for those rainy days. So that was the, their strategy. Uh, that's correct. And if you look at any Hawaiian trust, you know, that's pretty much the strategy. And so uh, you also have lands that are being leased out to non-Hawaiians, to to businesses, to entities, to generate money. We do have commercial lands, which have gone through a process um, um, for zoning, and the individual communities have approved those plans, many of them 20 years ago, to identify revenue-generating lands, right? So we generate, and this year was a bad year, um, COVID was a bad example, but generally we, we generate between $11 million and $14 million dollars a year off of these lands, which go to supplement the uh, capital improvement budget that we get from the legislature. And some of that money goes into the rehabilitation fund, which gets granted out to homestead associations to build institutional memory capacity. You know, So if we had more, we certainly could do more and would love to do more. And Tom, uh, can you jump in here? Because, yeah, you know, I, I, I'd some, like to. Yeah. I, I'd like to first address uh, what the gentleman from Kauai uh, talked about, which is you know, how do we get to a point where we understand that it's not us versus them? It's not the rest of the state residents versus Native Hawaiians. You know, we as a state have an obligation. We are members of the state. And I don't know how we get to the point where we understand that by fulfilling our fiduciary duty to Native Hawaiians. We're really fulfilling a duty to ourselves. We agreed to this as a condition of statehood. Many, many people have made a tremendous amount of money in real estate speculation and real estate development in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. The Native Hawaiians have have been left behind. You know, the affluence that people have been generated, you know, unfortunately has been generated in some instances on the backs of Native Hawaiians. And I think it's a it's an important thing for citizens to remember. This is this is not a us versus them problem. This is a collective problem, and how do we how do we resolve it? You know, on the issue of deferral, I, I also just want to make a, a comment and disagree slightly slightly with Mr. Isla. Um, the the program as it's set up now is kind of turned on its head. Even if you qualify for a homestead, you still have to build a home, a house on that lot, which is going to cost several hundred thousand dollars. So the vast majority of the poorest Native Hawaiians don't even have a chance um, to, to, to get in there because they don't have that access to, the, to that funds. So while deferral in some instances may be, I prefer to live in Anahola or I prefer to live in Waimanalo, in many instances is, it is, I can't even conceive of how I could get that amount of money together. Um, so those are the comments I that I wanted to make. Thank you, for, Tom. I, I totally agree with that, and especially with the aging of the wait list, uh, con- contemplating taking out a $300,000, $500,000 mortgage at age 60, um, I agree with those those thoughts about uh, about uh, deferral. And uh, that's and- why we cannot have a state agency, uh, our trust, attempting to be Kamehameha School. 
Uh, one of the reasons that the Congress turned off the $13 million a year that DHHL was getting from the HASDA federal grants was exactly the, what's happening now. They, they attempted, DHHL attempted to not spend the federal money, and so they ended up with a backlog of $70 million, so Congress turned it off. Thankfully, Senator Schott is doing uh, fantastic work, and I think this year or maybe next year we'll see Nahazda return uh, upwards of $20 million a year uh, toward DHHL. Uh, we've got to invest in our people, not in investment funds in New York. William? Yeah. I, I do want to comment on, on that particular. Um, we, have, we have spent the majority of that uh, $70 million backlog. It's actually gone into infrastructure. It's gone into loans for homesteaders. So, um, yes, there was a problem. We've addressed that problem. We've moved it forward. Tom, regarding, I agree with you. Um, that's why we, ret we have retooled the program to allow for the, app, uh, the uh, awarding of vacant lots. So the department puts in anywhere from hundred dollars to $150,000 to develop a lot with the infrastructure. Now that beneficiary can build what they can afford. They can build a tiny house. They can hire a contractor. They can get a contractor and build uh, part of the house themselves to keep the cost down. 25 years ago, I had a contractor friend. My wife and I built a three-bedroom, two-bath house for $83,000 because we were willing to do some of the work. That's what we're offering to our beneficiaries. We also have um, a new product called subsistence ag where you're not required to, to build a house. However, because it's rural standards, it's easier for you to build a house at a much less cost. So we recognize that the turnkey model doesn't work for everyone, and we've taken steps to address that. On the point of infrastructure, we just did a story recently uh, where we highlighted something called a Cinderella toilet, which is a toilet that incinerates waste. And they've, they've got them you know, in use. The Department of Health is looking at it you know, as far as the rulemaking. But it, it's pretty in, uh, you know, innovative, and they've got one out at Coconut Island. They've got one out at uh, Turtle Bay, and it burns up the waste. So if you could get you know, toilets like that uh, into areas where you don't have sewer, I mean, my goodness. It would also us help us in terms of the EPA's requirement to close all cesspools yes. by 2040. Um, if we were able to get the Department of Health to approve such a device, then we could take a look at raw land where there is sufficient rainfall, where we could put in very basic roads, similar to our Kuliana program, and then the cost would be almost negligible to develop these lands and put more people on. So we are looking at all of these opportunities uh, moving forward. Okay, well, this is the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. We are looking at the past, the present, and the future of the Hawaiian Homes Commission Act. You can join our discussion by calling 1-877-941-3689. Stay with us. We'll be right back after a short break. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. The exhibition, Joyful Return, features a gallery presentation of modern and contemporary works from a diverse group of 20th century artists through July 25th. HonoluluMuseum.org. These days, the scene at home is busier. Hands full, meal in the oven, a dog begging for your attention. 
With so much going on inside, how can you stay connected to what is going on outside your home? Ask your smart speaker to play NPR. You'll get the latest news from your community and beyond. We'll keep you company while you keep things moving. Ask your smart speaker to play KHPR for HPR1 or play KIPO for HPR2. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor PCAT, Pacific Center for Advanced Technology Training. You are back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. We're talking about uh, the lease, uh, the homestead program here in Hawaii as we mark the centennial of the uh, Hawaiian Homes Commission Act. And William, can we look ahead because I know the latest thing we've heard in the news is that we will be getting some federal land, uh, property that was formerly the uh, Tsunami Warning Center out there on the uh, west side. And uh, that has access to water <laughs> and sewer. So uh, tell us, how soon could we move on those uh, uh, you know, parcels of the properties to get them into people's hands? Thank you, Catherine. So we, we have the deed. We signed the land over. We're actually providing um, security for the property now. Um, we will be asking the legislature for additional funds in order to develop the property. Of course, it's nice to have water right outside the fence line and electricity and roads um, so we don't have to do that again. Uh, should we get some funding? And it normally takes about um, from allocation to actually release by the governor about a two-year period. Then we will do okay. the environmental impact statement, the uh, entitlements, and all of those um, types of activities. Then we get into the plan and design before we can get to the construction. So we're still looking at the pipeline process of approximately four to six years oh, to gosh. get that. That's, wow. that's the process um, because, you know, we're not a government unto ourselves. We have to comply with all of the other state, federal, and county um, um, procedures and, and rules and regulations. And I would just want to add to Tom's comment that it's not only the state of Hawaii that agreed to take on this responsibility at the time of statehood. It's also the political subdivision of the counties, which, by the way, are a creation of Prince Kuhio in the territorial legislature. He created the counties because it was an opportunity to have grassroots political influence. So oftentimes we have to shift and remind mayors and remind county council members and remind bureaucrats within their system that they also agreed to uh, assist fiduciary with their fiduciary duties and um, in many ways work out how the systems don't match up together because they, they're part of the political subdivision that made the commitment. Right. So we all and have to work together yeah. to advance um, yes. the and goal. And I just want to say, no, we're, we're not trying to be Kamehameha schools, but our commissioners, who are trustees of this trust into perpetuity, um, are trying to prudently manage whatever monies we have to use the maximum benefit of the trust, not only today, 
but into perpetuity. Now, I know that uh, there was also a change that we are uh, also looking for uh, rentals. And uh, there is the Bolodrome uh, site here on Oahu. Uh, what's the latest on that? Well, I would add to that fact that, you know, this product, this rental product, took us two years to get rules so that we could actually implement it. Um, we understand that there are folks in their 60s that may not be able to get a mortgage. So this project will allow for up to about 230 people, um, 80% and below median income, most of them, to have affordable rentals to house Native Hawaiians so that they're not on the streets. Um, we are in the um, environmental impact stage, and then after that will come the um, preliminary drawings and then uh, the actual construction, which should start by 2024. Okay, and then anything else on the neighbor islands it's close to? We have um, just completed um, the issuance of a rent with option to purchase in Kona. I think we did 60 um, offerings there. And so here's another you know, sort of creative way to get people who can't qualify for that turnkey home into a process where they rent for 15 years and then they're able to you know, purchase the asset, and then we convert it to a homestead lease. Okay. You know, we did reach out to Gene Ross Davis. He's a third-generation Kama'ula Hawaiian homesteader on Molokai. His grandfather was one of the first Native Hawaiians to be awarded a Hawaiian homestead in uh, Kalama'ula uh, Molokai. He's a former Hawaiian homes commissioner for that island. And we asked him what he envisioned for the next 100 years. He said lowering the blood quantum. Surely we're acting upon the blood quantum, trying to lower the blood quantum as Kuhio envisioned it and also try to attain the one thirty-second level of blood quantum that will ensure us of being on the land another 100 years. I mean, can you imagine it's been at 50% not only to apply but to inherit as a beneficiary? Uh, 50% for, what, like 65 years or so? Previous to that, anything less than 50%, they're removed from the land. And that's a sad situation when you really think about it. That back then, all you got to do is marry one time outside of your race, boom, you're, you're at the cutting edge already. And we understand that, uh, you know, there are efforts by our uh, congressional uh, members to advance uh, a decision, I think it was by the, the governor, right, who, who had passed uh, some legislation to change that blood quantum from yes. half 50% to one thirty-second. Two years ago, the state legislature passed and the governor signed, and then um, it's sitting there waiting for the Department of Interior or someone from Congress to introduce this legislation for consent. And one thirty-second, of course, is what Kuhio wanted. Um, he had to settle for 50. Um, that was not, you know, that's part of getting legislation through. So Hawaiians are divided today because of that compromise. You know, somebody's 50, somebody's 49. Unfortunately, we're all Hawaiians. We all take care of our family, right? Um, we certainly support, and it was the folks in Kalamaula on Molokai and Keokaha who are, who are actually, some of them have actually had their homestead lease extended for another 100 years. So we're in that process right now. Um, and yes, it shouldn't matter who you fall in love with, right? But I want to interject a point right here that I think most people miss. When Punsker Hill and his friends started this initiative a hundred years ago or more than a hundred years ago, 
they weren't only looking at the native Hawaiian being disadvantaged and having troubles. They also were looking at the land, which was stripped from the native Hawaiian, losing that connection, that pili to it. And in that land became sort of um, uh, in need of assistance too. So the project putting native Hawaiians back on the land is a way to cure the um, ills of the land and to make pili again, the Hawaiian race too, to the aina, which, you know, you, you go to any immersion school today, and that's one of the most important things that they work to embed in our children, that they have this genealogical, historical, innate um, connection to the aina. So when you're given a homestead lease, you're given a privilege. That privilege is to take care of this aina for a total of 199 years for now, and then we'll see what the future brings. And we're going to play a, a soundbite from uh, Hawaii Senator uh, Brian Schatz. He was at the ceremony this morning out in Kapolei. Here's what he had to say. We all have more work to do to fulfill Kuhio's vision, and that's what I'm focused on as the chairman of the Senate Committee on Indian Affairs. To help carry out that vision, earlier this year we passed the American Rescue Plan, which included historic funding for Native Hawaiian programs, about $200 million for Native Hawaiian health, education, and housing. Uh, the biggest one-time infusion of money into Native communities, including Native Hawaiian communities in American history. And um, there's sort of two ways to look at that. One is that's an extraordinary accomplishment, and the other is that that's a drop in the bucket. And I think it's really important for us to understand that that is the kind of sustained commitment that we're going to have to make uh, over not a couple of years, not five years, not ten years, but generations to right these historic wrongs. That was Senator Schatz. Also uh, at the ceremony this morning was uh, Hawaii Governor David Ige. Uh, here's what he had to say. We continue the mission of Prince Kuhio. Uh, for example, we know we need to finally resolve the remaining obligations of 1995's Act 14 settlement. And as one of the co-authors of Act 14, it bothers me that till today, more than 20 years later, almost 20 years later, um, we still have not, well, actually it's more than 20 years, we still have not finished the settlement that was set in motion uh, in 1995. Uh, we were making tr tremendous progress and then the pandemic happened. So uh, I just want all of you to know that I'm committed to completing that before the end of my administration. Uh, it is important for us to follow through on those commitments made a while ago. You know, I think, yes, people are bothered. You know, you've, you've got to right this wrong. Uh, I don't know, uh, Robin or Tom, you want to jump in here? I'm, I'm, I'm gratified that the governor is uh, recognizing part of what the obligation is and part of the fact that the obligation has not been, <clears throat> not been continued. But frankly, there's been no administration, except for Governor Waihe's, that's, that's taken a consistent approach to say, how are we going to make a plan to move forward and resolve this thing? It's just been kicked down the road, administration after administration. And while I'm gratified that uh, Governor Ige wants to resolve this one small part of it, uh, I think there's much, much more to be done, as, as Robin can, I'm sure, uh, detail. Completely, completely agree. I mean, uh, I appreciated Senator Schatz's comments and, and certainly 
Governor Ige, but I, I echo Tom's uh, comments. And what I'd like to say to the public, besides righting a wrong, sure, but I'm a banker by training, okay? The Native Hawaiian and the Hawaiian Homeland Program has been missed as a major component of the economic recovery and the economic health and wealth of Hawaii for all citizenry. We have got to move capital, not hoard it. We need to invest capital to build infrastructure in order to move land. What is that going to do, Catherine? That is going to employ unions. That's going to put dirt movers on the ground, surveyors, appraisers, etc. Well, uh, Robin, I, I do. I don't mean to cut, cut you off, but I do want to take. A, we have a caller from Puna, and I'd like to get it in because you've only got like two minutes left. Uh, Greg, what's on your mind? Yes. Um, I found out about. Uh, I was reading, and I, uh, I'm non-Hawaiian, but I have many friends on the on the list, and I found out about this accelerated acceptance program uh, that someone told me about that they oh, used in Kahikinui on Maui whereby uh, limited infrastructure was needed and all, um, all that was uh, put in was, was roads. I was wondering if this could happen elsewhere throughout Hawaii. Bill? Yeah, the answer is absolutely correct. Um, we are actually in the process of finishing up an environmental impact statement and a master plan for that same program to be instituted in Anahola. And if we can ever get the, um, a toilet that is inexpensive, um, approved by the State Department of Health, um, that will allow us to place more people <laughs> on the land more quickly because even though the Kuleana Land Award uh, program is in place, if you build a house, the state of Hawaii is going to require you to have an individual wastewater system that is certified. Um, currently, a, a rule change um, in areas where the designated um, aquifer is set aside as protective, um, these new individual wastewater systems can cause, cost upward of $40,000. So if we could get an instrument or a device that would, re that would re reduce that cost, we will be able to put many, many more people on the land quicker. Okay, so let's uh, hope uh, that the, the high-tech, uh, the technology can help us move toward the mission of the Hawaiian Homelands a commission act and get uh, more Native Hawaiians on the land. We would like to thank our guests today, Honolulu Attorney Tom Grande, William Isla, Director of the Department of Hawaiian Homelands, and Chairwoman Robin Danner of the Sovereign Council of Hawaiians Homestead Associations. And we'd like to thank you, the listener, for joining us here on today's show. If you have a comment to share about today's show, please call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. You can also send us an email at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And if you want to listen back to today's show, check out the Conversation podcast at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. <laughs>